Hello! Welcome to the Naked Swimmers edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. Here as well is Anna Shemansky. Hello. And in the seat normally filled by Emily Peck, we have the one and only Charles Duhigg. I'm a, a pale comparison to Emily. Well, you are a bit paler than it's true. You know, but I'll try. I'll try my best. You, no, so Charles, last time you were on this show, you had written an amazing thing about Elon Musk. Yeah. And you were just recording something mysterious in the. Um, studio next door and we were talking about Elon Musk and we were like Charles Duhigg is literally in the studio next door we need to drag (laughs) him in there to talk in here to talk about Elon Musk and the one thing that we didn't know is what the hell were you doing in the studio next door and now it's come out now now the show is in the world now you know and now we know that Charles Duhigg is now a slate podcast. I'm a slate podcaster. So we're making a show called How To. And the idea behind it is the tagline is, what if Dear Abby was an investigative journalist? So every week someone calls up with a problem. They want to learn how to, um, they want to learn how to be funnier. A, a pastor called us and says, I want to be funnier from the pulpit. And so we find an expert, this guy, Gary Goldman, who's a comedian to give him advice or, or someone wants to learn how to rob a bank. That was actually me. I want to learn how to rob a bank. So I went and I hung out with a bank robber all day and then I robbed a bank. You robbed a bank? Well, I kind of tried. <laughs> <laughs> my, 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 um, my feeling about robbing banks is that it's incredibly easy to rob a bank. The difficult thing is not getting caught. That's exactly right. right. That is, you you hit the nail on the head. And it turns out that um, robbing a bank, it's less sexy than I thought it was. And like the amounts that people steal when they rob banks, I've seen the stats on this. Like you walk in, you're like, give me all your money, you hand them note over. And they're like, sure, here's my money. And you get like, what, three or $400 and you walk out and it's just like, and then you're like, wow, I got three or $400. That was... Two minutes Low, work. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. then you go to jail. Exactly. <laughs> For seven years. Oh. It's not the best long-term investment strategy, <laughs> but on the other hand, it's kind of cool to learn how to do it. So, okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm totally going to learn how to rub a bang. Do, but, do, so are you, can, I, can I call into how to and say, like, once I've robbed a bank, how do I not get caught? You could try. I'm not sure. Actually, that's a good point. Is that if anyone actually listening has a problem, if they send us their problem at howto at slate.com, we will read it and ho- hopefully have you on the show because we want people to send us what the thing the things that they want to learn how to do. But if I come on the show, will you describe disguise my voice so that it's Absolutely. not it's not obvious that I just robbed a bank? <laughs> Because like that could that could be problematic right there. Anyway, we are not going to talk about robbing banks in this show. We are going to talk about banks in other contexts because we're going to talk about how they, the big banks in America, spent I think a billion dollars yep. putting together this thing called RTP, which you haven't heard of and which has basically gone nowhere. And we're going to talk about that and how the Fed has said, "All right, enough already. We're just going to do it for you." That is coming up. We are going to talk about Elizabeth Warren's agriculture plan, but. First, we are obviously going to talk about trade wars, currency manipulation, and all manner of Chinese brouhaha, all coming up on Slate Money. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and... 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. 
Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I thought, I have to say, I thought that the trade war was, we, we, we had reached a new plateau. As it were, when was it at Trump, seven? <laughs> when Trump, well, yeah, at about seven, when Trump announced that he was going to put a ten percent tariff on the other three hundred billion dollars of Chinese imports that haven't yet been tariffed, I was like, oh, he's escalated up to seven, and he'll leave it at seven for a minute. But he didn't leave it at seven. No. He waited about like what three days, and then he escalated. Where would you put it now? Uh, uh seven point oh two. <laughs> no, I think it's more than that. I think it's, I mean, the, so what You realize did, I'm making a wand joke here, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's why I was going with that. Okay, all right. There's so no, it was six. No joke now is better than It was six, joke. now it's seven. It's going towards eight. No, so, okay. So there is a Chinese guarantee, which is worth seven. But yeah, what happened was Ch- Trump decided that his tra- tariffs weren't enough. And so he got very annoyed at the way that the markets work. And- What happens when you put tariffs on Chinese goods is that people spend less money on Chinese goods, which means they are moving less money into China, converting their money into yuan to buy Chinese goods. So there's less demand for the Chinese yuan. And at the same time, when you announce that you're starting a trade war, the world kind of freaks out a bit and does this thing called flight to quality and they want safe assets and the safest asset in the world is the US dollar. So people stop buying the Chinese yuan, they start buying the US dollar and what that does very naturally is it causes the exchange rate of the Chinese yuan to the US dollar to decline and so the Chinese yuan gets weaker and that's exactly what happened and it was entirely predictable and everyone knew that that was what was going to happen if Trump did this and so it happened and so Trump looked at it and he was entirely unsurprised and did nothing. (laughs) Wait, no. Trump, Trump looked at it and said, oh my God, you are artificially devaluing your currency and therefore I'm going to declare you a currency manipulator, which Well, it's particularly interesting because it's basically he's labeling them a currency manipulator for manipulating their currency less. That's is exactly really right. is really what's happening. Yeah, he, the, if you looked at the actual Mnuchin statement, it was wonderful. He's like, you used to be manipulating your currency. And to, now you've stopped. And now you've stopped. And therefore, now you're a manipulator. And, and this is the important part of, of like context here, right? Is that for years, the Chinese actually did manipulate their currency. Up they, until about 2014 or so. Exactly. Until about the last two years of the Obama administration, they would artificially keep their currency, the yuan, very weak against the US dollar. And then they stopped. And as a result, now that the that it's further weakening, they, they've, they because they no longer manipulate the currency... We're seeing this this effect occur, right? Yeah, and it's important to remember that there's really no such thing as a fully controlled or a fully free-floating currency. But the yuan has been moving much, 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 much more towards a kind of what we call like a managed float. So just to kind of – because I know sometimes people will be like, but wait, if they're allowing it to weaken, doesn't that mean that they were manipulating it before? And that's not quite true. Well, they were manipulating it before and they are manipulating it a little bit less. But ultimately, you know, it is up to the Chinese government where the currency trades and they are now allowing it to trade, let's just say, closer to where the market wants it to trade if it was left to its own devices – And market manipulation, the idea of currency manipulation is that you move it away from where the 
currency would normally trade if it was left to its own devices. And when they were manipulating the currency, as you say, in Charles, in the Obama administration and making it artificially weak, that is what they were doing. And I'm I'm kind of obsessed by this idea that basically what we are seeing here is a bunch of idiot politicians who just haven't woken up to the fact that things have changed in the past five years. And that you have people like Chuck Schumer, who, you know, is no great fan of Donald Trump, coming out and saying, Donald Trump, you need to label them a currency manipulator. And you're like, why? And he's like, because they're making that currency artificially weak. And you're like, no, they're not. And he's like, no, they are, because I haven't looked at the newspaper since 2012. And this is, yeah, and this is actually significant because I think sometimes people ask, like, okay, well, why is Donald Trump continuing to push forward with this trade war? Like, why is he doing it? Well, part of the reason he's doing it is because in both the right and the left, there is a lot of anti-Chinese sentiment. So actually, a lot of these policies are not as unpopular as they may be for those of us who perhaps understand these things maybe a little bit more. Donald Trump certainly believes that China bashing is good on a sort of political electoral level. Absolutely. And it, and it does seem to be paying off, right? You don't see a lot of people coming forward and saying, look, you're being too anti-Chinese. And if you look at the Democratic debates, all of the candidates get asked, would you reverse or repeal the Trump tariffs on China, and they tend to hem and haw and basically not answer the question. Again, because there's no there's no natural constituency that's pro-China in the United States, right? right? Well, there is, I guess, now that I'm saying it, <laughs> well, which I mean, is literally there, everyone who buys large, or sells anything. And there's also like a very large company in Cupertino, you know. But that's yeah, exactly right. But and, those people don't get votes. And soybean farmers and a number of people. There's, well, there's a lot of- We're going to come that, to the farmers yeah, in a minute, and that's actually yeah. yeah, and we'll, we'll get to those more, but just like a little preview. Um, it's actually interesting because I think people thought that part of the reason like that the- the Chinese were seeming to kind of target American agricultural products. Partly it's that's because a lot of what we export, but also because people thought, well, they're actually doing this because they want to hurt Trump in the elections. But I think that they're not quite thinking that through, because if you actually hear a lot of the kind of if you look at the polls, hear people speak with a lot of these farmers, this is kind of Trump country. And there is a tremendous amount of anti-Chinese sentiment. So the more the Chinese do that, the more popular it actually can make Trump's well, I mean, policies yeah, I, related I to this. It's, yeah, it's, I think the, yeah, the electoral consequences of Chinese agricultural policies notwithstanding, the fact is that the designation of China as a currency manipulator is one of the weirdest things Absolutely. in yeah. politics because it took years and years. I remember Tim Geithner being asked like every week when he was Obama's Treasury Secretary, are you going to label China a currency manipulator? And the, everyone would hang on his every word like, will he, won't he, does he, you know curl his lip a little bit before saying no. Like, everyone was obsessed with this. And no one knew why. Because it has literally zero effect on anything. The no. only thing it does is it stops OPIC from being able to lend money to China. The last time that OPIC lent money to China was 1998. You know, it's like... Yeah, it starts like a year-long consultation process. Yeah, that America, even the end of that isn't really significant. So, so this yeah. is the crazy thing. It, they, America starts talking to the IMF for a year, saying, "Can you? We need, we're very worried about this currency thing. Can we maybe do something about the currency thing?" And if nothing happens after a year, then they can impose. Get this between three and twenty million dollars of penalty. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> it's, it's it's literally like you know. Austin Powers, like, you know, this, you know, the baddie thing, one million dollars. Like, but there is actually a genuinely 
massive and important consequence to this, which is that it really annoys the Chinese and makes any trade deal much, much harder to come to. And it annoys the Chinese in very hard to understand ways. And this is, I think, one of the biggest, bigger issues around this, right, is that oftentimes when a particular administration makes a, uh, a statement, they say we're labeling so-and-so a tr- uh, manipulator, or we're doing X or Y or Z, they usually give a speech explaining exactly why. Because the truth of the matter is like watching a fight, a trade war, is like watching your parents fight, right? You might think that they're fighting over, you know, the dog when it turns out what they're fighting over is an affair. And unless you know the context, it's very, very hard to understand the signaling that's going on. And so I think that's why when Geithner was asked this question, everyone would would look to him because we knew that if he says yes, it's an opportunity to signal something about the Obama administration's stance on trade towards China. This is like a, this China. is like an artificial bid in bridge. That's right. It's like you're, <laughs> you're saying one thing, but you're meaning something that's else. That's exactly right. The problem with Trump is we have no idea what he's actually saying or meaning or anything because they don't give any guidance. And if they did give guidance, there's a huge amount of skepticism about whether Trump actually is saying what the rest of the government thinks and means. And so we've seen this weird thing where- whether that is even like a, a, a thing yeah. right. that the government thinks and right. means. Right. Does he understand what whatever, this whatever the means? government Does... thinks and means can change on a dime according to what segment Trump watched on Fox News that morning? That's exactly right. And and like and there's r- legitimate questions about whether he understands trade, whether he understands trade policy. Whatever. Is that they, a question? He, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I I actually I I actually give more credence. He to... genuinely believes that China is paying these tariffs. He well, honestly believes that. Yeah. Although to be fair, like actually a lot of Chinese companies are like it is affecting a lot of Chinese companies. Oh, just it, to be it, fair, but, it is harming China. Right. But the people paying the tariffs are American importers, right, course, and yeah. Trump genuinely does not understand that. I I don't know what he understands or what he doesn't, and that's part of the problem. Is that financial policy from the White House or from any government is usually a signaling device as much as it is actually a stick, well, right? And this is exactly right. And this is why you know Treasury secretaries have always been very careful about what they say. And if they ever say anything about the dollar, except for a strong dollar is in the national interest, then everyone freaks out because it's all about very subtle signaling. Absolutely. And the one thing that Trump can't do, and no one in the Trump administration can do, is subtle anything. And that's a lot of actually what I think we've seen this week and why the market reacted as it did is because this is all about signaling. It's the fact that the the reason that the market reacted to the, you know, the one going above seven is not because seven is some magical number. It's because what it signified. It signified that perhaps the Chinese were actually going to use their currency as a tool in this war. Like, what, what does it signify that Trump is just making all these pronouncements? Well, what it signifies is that this probably isn't going to be a short term thing. This very likely could continue to escalate and actually go beyond 2020. So and. Go beyond 2020 the year. And then also the really big thing, which everyone is kind of freaked out about now, at least I'm kind of freaked out about, and I'm assuming that everyone else is because I kind of extrapolate from me, (laughs) is that given how things are getting worse and there's no obvious mechanism for them to get better, there seems to be this weird inevitability that 10% tariffs are going to become 25% tariffs because that's what Trump has announced, that absent a trade deal with China, he's going to put 25% tariffs on everything. And if he puts 25% tariffs on all Chinese imports, which he has said he is going to do absent a deal, then basically that's the end of global trade right there. Like That is a serious It's a recession. huge shock. And, and it's interesting because the thing about signaling is it's bimodal, right? When, when signaling is ambiguous and things aren't tense enough, 
the ambiguity is actually very healthy. People say like, well, I think he means X, but we should hedge our bets. But, we, you know, don't don't count on it. And then as soon as things get very, very tense, the signaling becomes over important. People begin right. over investing in trying to understand what the signal means. And what's happening, I think, right now in the global economy is that everyone is waiting on the eggshell, on the, the brink of the precipice to say, like, when does this growth finally end? Like, when does the crash come? When does all hell break loose? And so every single time there's a signal, you see this, this huge reaction in the market because there's a bunch of people saying, this is the longest period of uninterrupted growth in a, over a century. And also, most importantly, like, when will Trump step away from the brink? Will he ever step away with the, from the brink? Because it's becoming increasingly obvious that global central banks cannot rescue the economy on their own. Right. That if Trump decides to drive the American economy off a cliff at exactly the same time that Boris Johnson is driving the British economy off a cliff, there's nothing central banks can do. We're all going on. And exactly. And you're talking about, you know, having like a global manufacturing recession. The fact that we're starting to see this in some U.S. numbers, not consumer sentiment, but in a lot of other things. And I think this is the other reason you're seeing more of a reaction. Up until now, it's been this kind of the market worrying its way up. Right. Like it, it gets worried. Things happen. But then it's still kind of cute. But I don't know. Now you're you are actually starting to see this in hard data. And that's why I think the market is also going to react more to these things. Yeah. I mean, look, for two years now, it's been terrifying. Right. <laughs> and the but it's been terrifying. Exactly. As you said, worrying its way up. It's been terrifying. But every day we wake up and it's a little bit better than yesterday. So it's OK. Well, but I mean. The, the world isn't up. better than yesterday, <laughs> the, but the market is the higher market than is yesterday. higher. And this is and this is the thing which you know in the world of CNBC or Fox Business, so long as the market is higher, everything else doesn't matter. Right. And I'm setting aside race relations in America <laughs> and politics and the anxieties of being an American right now. But when it comes to economic growth, things have been going okay, Ish. and and it's. In the U.S., yeah. In the U.S., and as long as you're you're uh, part of the upper middle class or upper class, then it's been going well. If you're part of the middle class or, or under the middle class, then things have not been going well. Well, actually, recently, purchasing power in a lot of the states that are predominantly Trump country have actually increased at a faster rate than in other areas. So, that's I mean, that, true. Yeah, and that's unemployment is at an all-time right. low. And, like, and, and like just in the last couple of months, um, there's been this massive refinancing boom, and housing affordability. Houses are way more affordable now than they have been in the last past See, few this years. is the weird part about what's going on is that is that if you talk to anyone listening to this podcast or all of our friends, they all hate the they hate what's going on in the White House. They hate the politics right now. And most of the time when everyone when the country is so divided, when things are so bad, when the things are so chaotic, you also see economic distress. And we're not seeing that right now. And that's the weird part of this equation. And trade is a huge part of this. Could Trump possibly afford to do what he is doing if the economy was on its was on its heels? No. Right. It, declaring China as a currency manipulator with, when they're literally not manipulating the currency would be potentially disastrous. But the rising tide of the last eight, nine years has covered so much naked swimmers, so many naked <laughs> yeah, swimmers, exactly. that, that as a result, there's all this give that in slack in the system. And the real worry is, at some point, the tide goes out, we don't realize it, and everyone keeps swimming the same way, and we kill ourselves. <laughs> this is a Charles Duhigg metaphor. That it's a tortured I, metaphor. That we're going, that, that, like, I'm going to be worrying for like... <laughs> Weeks. I'm gonna. I'm gonna start rewinding this episode and trying to work out what on earth is this swimming metaphor is all about. It's, it's, a, it's a Warren tomorrow. Buffett thing, right? It, it, is, a, it Buffett, is a Warren but Buffett, it's a, Buffett but it's a nice take on the Warren yeah. Buffett. I like it. I like okay. It. <laughs> 
Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. So when Trump announced his tariffs, the 10% tariffs last week, what he said was the Chinese promised that they would buy a whole bunch of American agricultural produce and then they didn't buy a whole bunch of American agricultural produce. And I'm very cross that they didn't do what they said they were going to do. And so I'm going to implement these tariffs. Now, whether the Chinese ever promised this is extremely unclear. How they are supposed to have made this promise is extremely unclear. Whether they, you know, what they promised and whether they fulfilled their promise, no one really understands. But that was certainly the stated reason for implementing the tariffs. Then, after Trump declares China to be a currency manipulator, China's like, oh, you want us to stop buying American agricultural produce? We'll stop buying American <laughs> agricultural produce. And they actually watch just this. like, watch this. And then they're like, okay, basta. We're just going to buy all of our soybeans from Brazil, you know? And so now they really are doing a concerted boycott, basically, of American farmers, which is – and American farmers – you know, we were just talking about how the economy has been broadly healthy for quite a long time. It has not been broadly healthy if you're an American farmer no. for well. quite a long time. And and <laughs> and so and what has happened historically, or at least over the past couple of years since Trump has been president, is every time that anything mean happens to a anything bad happens to an American farmer, Trump like writes a check and says, "Listen, can I just make it better with some money?" And the and the farmers say. No, not really, because this isn't about my annual income so much as it's about my relationships with these Chinese buyers, which it took me decades to put together. And now I have a, like, a long-standing customer who's going to buy tons and tons of produce for decades to come. And you can't just write me a single check and say, I'm sorry. Though all those relationships have now been broken. Trump is facing a real problem in farmland. Now, I mean, 
Anna's point is well taken. It's not like these farmers are necessarily going to stop voting for him. But he has supporters there. They are angry about this. They are losing their livelihood. They are making less money than they would otherwise have done, you know, in the event of normal trade relations with China. And so there's a little bit of a crisis going on. And who has a plan for this? Who has a plan? Who has a plan? Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Elizabeth Warren has a plan. (laughs) To the rescue. She has a plan for farmers. And I have to say, I kind of like her plan. It's It's spectacularly bad. At least half of it is. Like <laughs> before we diagnose a plan, we should point out that the reason we're even talking about this, we never talk about like the plight of the American dentist, right? Or <laughs> yeah, the plight I know. of the American veterinarian. It, it, and the reason why is well, because dentists and veterinarians are doing okay. Well, so are all, farmers. For all I mean, we know, we we're not we're not out polling them. There's no plan. No, Elizabeth Warren doesn't have a plan for American dentists. And the reason why is because American farmers, beyond holding a special place in the identity of this nation, also have a disproportionate voting power because of the electoral college. They right? also have lobbyists. They tend. Of, yeah. They tend to live in states that have less population. They and those states have a disproportionate impact on the electoral college and electoral politics. And so, it is worth noting that the reason we're talking about this is not because the American farmer is so important to our economy as much as it is so important to who gets elected president. It's, yes. it's important in terms of the electoral college, and it's also very important in terms of the early primary states. Absolutely, yes. absolutely. Yeah. And every country has a odd relationship with its farmers. <laughs> I mean, this is not a a, a especially American thing. But Elizabeth Warren's plan is is certainly not the first of this kind. And I would say there are two parts of her plan, we can say. Okay. There, there's one part of her plan that I agree with. And I think I agree with both from an ethical perspective and also empirically it has been shown to work, which is that if you take a lot of money and invest it in R&D related to agriculture, you tend to get a good result. That is, in fact, exactly what happened in the like 50s through 70s. That's part of the reason we saw this enormous like growth in the productivity of the American farming sector. It was the way we were trying to win the Cold War. So I think the idea of plowing a lot of money into this area, especially in, in order to try to like uh, improve soil health, fight climate change, decarbonize, that makes a tremendous amount of sense. And this is all like basically a sub plan of the Green New Deal, which Elizabeth Warren was very early to sign on to. She was like, if we're going to decarbonize the economy, then agriculture is going to be a very key part of that. And so what she's doing in this agriculture plan to a large degree is sort of fleshing out that part of the Green New Deal. And, and there's some tensions in there. We should get back to those. But I think Anna's coming up on the second part of the okay, plan. Okay, then there's <laughs> the second part, which is... <sighs> which is basically just another version of price controls. And it's something we have seen over and over. So many administrations have tried to do this type of thing. It is always a disaster. And yet every time it's like, well, no, no, this time is different. So let me explain. What she is trying to do is basically say, okay, well, we've seen that a lot of U.S. farm subsidies have caused tremendous amounts of overproduction. Essentially, all the subsidies go to extremely wealthy farmers. But you know what? No, this time our subsidies are going to be different. They're going to be different because you know what we're going to do. Okay, so we're going to give farmers a loan. And then what's going to happen is that this loan is going to cover their costs. And then they can either sell their goods, repay us from that money that they earned, or they can just give us the goods and we'll buy them at cost. And then if the price goes up or the price goes down, we'll just release the grain or we'll hold back the grain and then everything will be great. Okay. There are many, many problems with this, but the biggest, <laughs> this is, <laughs> I have very strong feelings about this. The biggest two problems with this, one, are when you say, okay, well, we're going to, we're going to, you know, cover your costs. Okay. Then what are you doing? Well, what you're doing is you're encouraging 
fertilizer companies, seed companies, all of these to significantly increase their costs because now they have a guaranteed buyer in the government. We've also seen this happen in the United States. We've also seen this happen in other countries where when you do this type of thing, when you say, oh, we're going to cover your costs, it tends to encourage people to use way too much fertilizer because then they can actually like increase yield. So this is- And a fertilizer just to, you know, in terms of the Green New Deal is- Is not a great carbon. thing. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, it, you know, the, the Haber-Bosch process, which we all you know know and love, is basically <laughs> the way you grow crops is you burn carbon and extract nitrogen from the air and put the nitrogen into the soil. And so, like, in that sense, agriculture is a very ungreen industry. And it's important to note that the way that Elizabeth Warren has, has categorize this right and you're exactly right this plan has never worked never. ever they did it during oh, the they did it during you know the great depression they did it during world war ii and like as as a crisis measure it has occasionally helped prop up an industry right but it's never been a way and we're, farming is not in crisis right now the, the other what the way that elizabeth warren poses it is she says look i want to help small farmers because they've all been overtaken by the large industrial farming complex and this is where i also just like i wanted to tear my hair out because in this plan states as though this is something that's happened recently. If you know anything about agricultural history, you know that the significant decline in the number of U.S. farmers happened between 1950 and 1970, and it's pretty much been plateauing since then. The idea that the reason that you know, yes, we have a lot of small farmers and they're not always super productive, but that doesn't mean that they're doing poorly. Actually, if you look at their median incomes, they're higher than pretty much than the average median American worker. So number one, like that's just not a real thing. Also, if you're talking about some of the issues that have affected farmers, it's not been just because, oh, you have big companies. It's been because you've had changes in what China is buying, even before Trump, in terms of commodities that China is buying. On top of that, you've also just had the growth in the global competition in agriculture. So that's that's another thing that it's not because, oh, the big, bad, evil agriculture. And so to me, her entire argument is based on a flawed premise. OK, well, let me just just to I think we've got enough of a rant to be getting on. with. Oh, it's, it's going to still continue. It's going <laughs> to continue. I have not even finished yet. No, but the the part of Warren's plan where she basically says, look. I mean, I mean, on one level, it makes sense. Most agriculture in America is done by big agricultural companies and therefore just, you know, mutatis mutandis, big agricultural companies are going to get most of the agricultural subsidies. On some level, there is a intuition that I think most voters probably share that farm subsidies should be going to smaller farmers and not the big companies. And if you can take that pool of money and somehow find a way of redistributing it away from Monsanto and Archer Daniels Midland and to the farmer with the middle class income, that would be an improvement. Why? Because to me, it's what is your problem? Is your problem that we don't like big things and we like small things? Or is your problem that we want to figure out how to make our agricultural system efficient more, well, no, far more green no clearly and, clearly it's not about efficiency because there are economies of scale and so if you want efficiency you just get rid of all the small farms and just have monsanto take over the whole thing well it's it's about it's about fairness in the but why let's, let's, like, let's, let's what's the back. point like, no, no, but, let me on let me answer okay, okay, okay. <laughs> let, let me answer that question i, I understand what you're saying what i'm saying is that there's something intuitively unfair about Massive agricultural subsidies going to people, you know, ma big corporations that really don't need the money and are highly profitable anyway. Of course. So then what you do is you sort of say, well, let's get rid of those subsidies. And folks like, yeah, great. Oh, like less subsidies, good thing, smaller government. But that never 
seems to work. And what my feeling is about the Warren plan is it's an attempt to basically just do a little bit of redistribution of wealth within the agricultural industry, not with a great plan for improving the efficiency of agriculture, not with a great plan for making America, a, a, you know, a, a bigger exporter. But to fight income inequality. But to basically just say, listen, if we are going to spend all of this money on the agricultural industry, can we, can we at least give it to individuals rather than to massive corporations? So here's an idea, though. Like, like, sorry, like, number one. I'd just like to point out again that the median farmer is is not doing spectacularly poorly. They're, they're doing spectacularly worse than Monsanto. Right. So I but but that's not the point. The that point, is the point. No, it's not. Because because my point is like, well, then maybe they shouldn't be farming. Like maybe there's a more productive use of their skills. Like I think we shouldn't have farm subsidies for essentially anyone if we want to. No, no, no. Do I, we can we can have that. And I'm I don't think anyone's disagreeing with you on that. I don't think that is the I don't think anyone is saying like Farm subsidies are awesome and they should go to small farmers. I think that what we're saying, or at least what I'm saying, is if you have farm subsidies, it is better they go to small farmers than they go so, to So big, let me let me introduce one thing, business. which is um setting aside like the question of like justice and farming, which is interesting but oftentimes does not guide pu- public policy. There is actually a policy goal here, which is food s- security. Right? One of the reasons we have in, in fact the original reason we have subsidies to farmers is because we believe that there should be a certain amount of domestic food production so that if our capacity to buy from overseas is cut off like during a war, we have the ability to feed our nation. So I disagree with this <laughs> because like but uh, historically, no, no, historically, no, no, historically, no, 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 that's, that's, I mean, that's been yes, a reason. It's, it's true. So, so that is true. So, let's, so, let's, so the question finish. then becomes if we're using that as our standard, right? We want to make sure that America has enough food production in order to provide for us in the most green way possible where we're not at, where we're not adding carbon to the needlessly. Then the question therefore becomes, how do we have a set of policies? Now, it turns out small farmers actually are part of food security because if you have monocultures, if you have mono farms, if you only have a handful of producers, they have monopoly power. It tends to be in a in a security scenario very very difficult. You don't need a ton of small farmers, but you do need some diversity. In and you don't want a whole bunch of, as you say, you don't want monoculture. You don't want every single farmer in America doing that like Ricardian thing of producing the crop that generates the most profits. Absolutely. Because what you want is a bunch of different farmers producing a bunch of different food that people can eat. And by the way, there's some things that we're really good at. Artichokes, for instance, right? Like the United States is great at producing artichokes in California, and and we don't. It's it's not subsidy dependent, but there are some subsidies that go to it for very, very good reasons for wealth redistribution, which is something that, that Felix, you were saying you like. So <laughs> I guess the argument I'm making is the only reason we're talking about this instead of dentists is because it is a political question. So to the issue of whether we ought to be doing this from an economic perspective or whether we ought to be doing this from a justice perspective – the economic question is actually kind of off the table. And the justice question entirely depends on your ideological bent. And so as a result, we have a system to basically say one industry that gets a lot more attention than it should get because it really doesn't matter to most Americans' livelihood whether we have a strong or a weak farming industry. We're going to actually test whether we care about farmers or not when we go to the polls. And last time, apparently, we cared about farmers enough to elect Trump. But historically, we don't care about them. And my guess is this election will be one of the last where this is actually a huge issue. If you look at every, almost every industrialized nation, there is this very, I mean, I think a lot of this is kind of atavistic, like belief that like our country needs to support small farmers, despite the fact that there's very little evidence that that's important for any real reason. So I I don't think that this is necessarily just going to go away. But the one thing I, I just want to say this is that like, 
I think it makes sense if you think of like, we want to make sure that people who are farming or for people, just as people who are dentists, people who are yoga instructors, people who are anything, are not falling below a certain level. You know, like that that's fine. And you can think of, OK, like we want to do some wealth redistribution. That's fine. But my problem with these subsidies is my problem if you look at what happened with Carter and the dairy subsidies, if you look at what happened with FDR and a lot of the grain, if you look at what happened with Johnson and like egg prices. It's the most inefficient way to to redistribute wealth. So instead of having more money to actually improve people's lives, you waste all this money and you end up paying for things and then having to destroy them and pay people not to do them. That's my point. It's an inefficient way. And I actually think it ends up leaving everybody worse off. By the way, where are the yoga subsidies? <laughs> subsidies for yoga instructors. As you mentioned, I think that's a great point. That Agreed. They, that like, that like w- income inequality is something we want to fight and that this is a particularly ineffective or inefficient tool for doing so. Wait, but the, the, I know a lot of yoga instructors who they have trouble it's making true. Me, making. They ends probably meets. have a lower median income than the average farmer. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. I would like to see some yoga instructor subsidies. I'm just putting it yeah. out there. Right. I, I I'll ask Elizabeth Warren next, <laughs> next time I, I talk to. Do you, do you have a plan <laughs> for yoga instructors? <laughs> okay, I'm going to geek out now a little bit because this is my favorite subject: payments. <laughs> um, long-term listeners of Slate Money are probably familiar with the fact that I'm weirdly obsessed with payments. Um, we are going to have a show in a couple of weeks with Raghu Rajan, of the former governor of the Bank of India, who introduced an instant payments scheme in India. And now you anyone in India can pay anyone else in India instantly. Um, and it's amazing. And it's not just India which has instant payments. Like dozens of countries have instant payments. China has instant payments. UK, Sweden, Denmark, Switzerland, you name it. It's almost like this technology is relatively easy to set up. And the, the US, believe it or not, actually has instant payments. It has this thing called RTP, which no one has ever heard of. It has existed for about two years. It doesn't cover most banks, but it covers most Most bank accounts because it covers the bigger banks. The problem is that none of the banks actually use it. And it's like the, the volumes on this thing are basically zero. So the Fed has now basically said, okay, banks, you had your chance. You rolled out this RTP thing. It was just dead in the water. No one's using it. We are going to come out and do our own version of this. It's going to be called Fed Now. And Fed Now. Fed Now. And it's going to come out in, quote, 2023 or 2024, because like somewhere around there. Apparently, it takes a while to Fed do this. Not right now, but in 20, <laughs> Fed 2023. Fed soon. Fed, fed, fed in, in, in a few years' time. Um, now, I kind of think that this is as it should be, that the deep rails of how money moves around the country naturally get set by the central bank. If you look at the other 25 countries that have instant payments, every single one of them, their instant payment systems was basically implemented by the central bank. And there's, you know, well, except for China, but um, but like China notwithstanding, all the rest of them did, did it with the central bank. And central banks have an obvious reason to do this because it prevents balkanization. If you look at the way it works in China, there are two entirely separate systems. There's Alipay and there's WeChat, and they don't talk to each other. And you can't send money from an Alipay account to a WeChat account or the or the other way around. And it's a mess. Whereas if you just have a single system for everyone called FedNow, anyone with a bank account can send money to anyone else with a bank account immediately, 24-7, within seconds. 
and you don't need to download a separate app and you don't need to, you know, all sign up for the same system because everyone is automatically on the same system because it's all fed now. That's the theory. Now, I suspect that Anna's going to tell me it's not going to work that way in practice. And for once, I might actually agree with her. Yeah, I mean, I have mixed feelings about this because I actually kind of agree with you in the sense that it does seem like this particular thing, having a tremendous amount of competition, I can see some of the benefits of that, but it also seems like... Payments is not something where you want competition. Right. <laughs> no, you I want like, infrastructure. Yeah, you want a pretty, you know, standard. Yeah, ha- having multiple payment systems has never been an advantage in any economy, really. Like, having one payment system, is, it's, the, it's a natural monopoly. It's something where you actually want a monopoly. And, and in a future episode, by the way, um, I'm going to talk about this book called Darkness by Design by Walter Matley, which is a, all about how stock markets should be a monopoly as well, which is a really fascinating argument. But- I would actually argue that what we're seeing right now is encouragement of competition. Because one of the th- interesting things is I might not be pro-small uh, pro farmer, but I'm definitely <laughs> pro-small bank. Right. And you you mentioned this interesting thing, which is the system, the RTP that exists right now, it's only actually used and controlled by a small handful of banks, but it's the majority of accounts in the nation right. that are that are eligible for it. And the reason why is because we have seen, as everyone knows, this huge, huge consolidation in the banking industry. Well, no, but it's because we have too many banks. I mean, I, I actually would argue that part of what ha- the problem is actually that America's banking system is far too fractured. We have way too many banks. And so that's but, a separate. Oh, wait, 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 but hang on a second. Either way, but let's, let's be issue. clear about it. If I am banking with JP Morgan, Morgan or Bank of America or Citibank or Wells Fargo, my bank is signed up to RTP. Right. But do I, as a depositor, have access to RTP? No. 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 So, like, there's a difference between the theoretically I have access to it because my bank does. And in fact, but one of the things that FedNow is going to do is it's going to make it possible for credit unions, for instance, to offer instant payment services to their clients. And And as a result, in theory, theoretically, (laughs) credit unions can sign up for RTP as well. Theoretically, but but the barriers to entry are so high. Well, no, it's not really that. No, it's because they were waiting because the whole point was a lot of these smaller banks. Part of the reason they didn't join on was because they because the Fed had been saying since 2013 that they were looking into doing this. They didn't want the big banks to be controlling this. They want the Fed to be. So they were just like, we're not going to join onto this thing. We're going to wait for the Fed to come in, which is kind of what's happened. But there was also a big technological barrier. So you're exactly right. But there was also a technological barrier. And hopefully with Fed now coming out, we're actually going to see the barriers go down Maybe. You see, this this is the real problem. The real problem is that it's not the banks. It's not the credit unions. It's these semi-visible payments processors who have names like FIS and Jack Henry and like they are the real target it's these guys who have these massive lumbering legacy systems and they look at something like RTP and they're like yeah yeah Yeah. and they don't do anything and they're going to look at Fed now and their reaction is going to be (laughs) and the question is how do you force them to do something because ultimately or how do you put them out of business the credit unions are not going to be able to do this on their own I know I used to sit on the board of a credit union for many years and there is absolutely no way. Did we have a CTO? No. Did we have anyone who could basically work Excel? <laughs> Not really. Like the idea that we could suddenly work out instant payments is literally inconceivable. Yeah. But it would need to be I, our vendor. I, I disagree. I disagree because I actually was talking to a bunch of credit unions recently, and and your experience aside, <laughs> some of them know how to use Excel. Um, and I, actually, one of the things that w- that is going to come out of this is a system of protocols that makes it much easier to participate in instant payments. First of all, I think we should applaud the. The Fed for 
for doing something, right? Like, it's very easy when a government agency comes out with some new proposal to say, like, oh, God, you should have done that 10 years ago. Or, oh, my God, it's going to take you two or three years. At the same time, yeah, we, the best we, time to do instant payments was 20 years ago. The second best time is now. Exactly. Right? And and I think that, like, we should say, like, look, the Fed is trying to, to push this ball forward. I actually think that what's happening right now is a very slow and and somewhat subversive assault on payday lenders on anyone who exploits the banking the lack of banking services for the poor that anytime we're seeing this democratization and ease of technology what we're really seeing is we're seeing an attempt to create more competition to serve markets that traditionally large banks haven't served because they're not profitable enough okay so and i'm this, hoping that credit yeah. unions step into that breach and also i mean this is a Great opportunity for me to talk about the other news of the week, which is that people are now signing up for Apple Card. It is a thing that exists in the wild. <laughs> um, it's being rolled out. It'll be pretty ubiquitous pretty soon. You can just open up your wallet on your iPhone and it will say apply for the card. And you click the button, apply. And literally within like a minute, you have a credit card, which is issued by Goldman Sachs on your phone. And you can use it to pay for stuff in... I think it's like 70% of merchants now have contactless payments. And for the merchants who don't have contactless payments, they will send you a beautiful titanium card in the mail and you can use that. So that is a form of payment. It's not, a, you know, there, there's lots of interchange fees and we can wonk out about that. So it's not a real like par payment like we're talking about. But that fascinatingly, even though it's a very high-end glossy credit card, is being issued to people with sub subprime credit. Like, you know, Goldman Sachs is issuing these cards to people with like 620 credit scores. And that form of credit is much, much vastly superior to anything that any payday lender can offer. Absolutely. It's true. Although I and just, cheaper. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. And I agree. And if it and if it works out, that's great. I mean, I always just get a little nervous when the economy is ultimately doing fairly well and you tend to start lowering credit standards for things. And and granted, I'm not saying that we can't potentially use technology to make um, credit more available with with without dramatically increasing risk. But I just get a little nervous because this very frequently happens. And then when the economy declines, you figure out like, oh, actually, now we shouldn't have issued all those things. People can't pay it back. See, I, in a bad but, but, position. I don't. That's, 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 I'm, I'm okay with that concerned. because it's who loses money in that event. It's Goldman Sachs. Well, <laughs> I mean, no, but it's also okay. the individuals who like took so on as, debt that as they long can't pay as off. a jerk ends up getting hurt. It's totally totally. Yeah. I will actually say I don't think the Apple Card is that big a deal. I mean, Capital One has been giving away cards to low low yeah. cre to low credit score individuals for years right now I I, I, the, the, I can't I, are... I have a hard time believing that like there's really that many genuinely low income folks with iPhones exactly like, I like I, to me the Apple card is primarily for like Apple fanboys like I to me I don't entirely get I get I mean I understand certainly why Goldman wants to get like into that Apple ecosystem. That makes a lot of sense to me. I understand Apple's trying to increase services, blah, blah, blah. I get that. I'm just, to me, like, not sure exactly what this card does that's so amazing that makes it that different from anything else. So it's, I mean, it's Your fingers it's sing not, when you pick it's, it up. It's <laughs> not It's not revolutionary. It's evolutionary. But there's a couple of things about it which are super interesting. One is the fact that it's designed to almost entirely be used on your phone rather than being a physical card. That's much more secure. There's a new dynamic. Basically, CVV code gets issued every single time. So like people oh, can't steal your uh -huh. number easily and that kind of thing. So th there are security improvements associated with it. It is also, in terms of the transparency of the fees and the interest, kind of the best credit card out there. It's 
all the other credit card companies make it super easy. They push you to make the minimum payment because that maximizes their profit. This one is actually pushing you to increase the amount of payments that you make. It's using a bunch of behavioral economics to actually try and minimize the amount of interest that you pay rather than maximize it. And that's super interesting because like, I just like that on a sort of conceptual level. And it's important to note, it is a big tech giant moving into finance. Right. right? I mean, that... With the exception of the, the Facebook currency, we haven't seen any of the big five say, hey, by the way, we're now a financial services company. Well, and I do... well it's Goldman Sachs, which is the financial services company. And, Gold... and Apple, if you ask them, will say, we don't have any of this information. Like, this is super interesting. When you open up your Apple Wallet app and you get to look at all of your transactions and categorize them in different ways and see whether you're staying on budget and there's these budgeting tools and all of that kind of stuff inside the wallet, all of that information is on your phone locally. It's stored on your phone locally. It's stored on the Goldman Sachs service because they know because they're lending you the money. Apple does not have that information. That's interesting. Although I do think that you're right that I, to me, this, if you're looking at why it is important, what you were saying, Felix, about being evolutionary, I think this is part of it. Same with Libra. It's about these U.S. companies kind of trying to do what Tencent and um, Alibaba and Alipay are doing in China. Like, it's, it's this idea of trying to say, like, we want to get into this. We want to start to, like, get out the middleman. We're not there yet. And we know we're not going to be able to just jump there yet in the U.S. ecosystem. But this does seem like one more step down that path. And the and the thing which I don't like about the Apple Card is the way that its cashback works is it gives you 2% cashback immediately, but not cash into your bank account and not a refund on the purchase. Instead, it gives you cash into an Apple Cash account, which is a different, separate account on your Apple Watch. And I can only use that to pay for Apple things, or I can use it. <laughs> you can you can use like it can, to pay. For I can any, go to town on iTunes. You can you can you can use it to pay for anything that you can pay for a contactless okay. payment, or you can move the money from them into your bank account, but it doesn't happen instantly. But Apple Cash is another one of those things like Venmo or Square Cash or PayPal or you name it, which is like one of these little walled garden bucket things where you have to keep a certain amount of money in there. Otherwise, you can't use it. And I just, on principle, don't like those. I think that everyone should just have a bank account where they keep their money rather than having to keep their money partly on this stored value card, partly in this app, partly on that, you know, their, you know, prepaid metro card or whatever that bothers me a little bit less than, <laughs> than, than but i will say this i do think that there is a, this is an evolution in the again a bifurcation that we're seeing in american and world culture between people who actually touch money and people who don't and that is kind of interesting the fact that apple is at the at the tip of the spear on this and apple is a luxury brand right it's not a populist brand it's interesting if you live in new york and you've gone through any of the tunnels recently you know that you can't use money anymore to pay the toll Right, it's all Easy Pass, or they send they and you need to and you need to put money onto your Easy Pass before you can go through the toll. And there was a really interesting series of studies that were done by economists looking at what happens when you move from handling money to automatic tolls. And the and the answer is that you see much more frequent and larger increases in the toll. Right, so that right. governments basically don't get the pushback from the people to when they raise tolls on bridges and and tunnels, and so they begin raising them more. And they raise them in weird increments. Right, I, I went through the battery tunnel last night. And I think my my toll was like six dollars and twenty one cents. 
which right. of course would never be if I had to hand over some cash. They would never make it something. The like New York that. City subway station. Yeah, is, exactly. The right. subway system is moving to contact, contactless payments, which is incredibly convenient. You just tap your phone, you get into the subway. But right now, you know, the the fare has been stuck at two seventy five for a long time. It's and gonna they, be super easy for them to move it up to two seventy nine and three oh six. That's exactly right. They also, they also the, do it such a way so that like if you use certain amounts, you always leave extra money on it. That's because they, exactly then right. they can collect that. Okay. Then well, they, yeah. well no, but that, that goes with contactless. Because with contactless, it just comes straight out of your credit card or your bank account. You don't have a separate card for it. But the so, interesting thing well, about this is that as we move into this economy where some people touch money and other people don't, there is going to be a disproportionate impact from the behavioral economics that results, right. which will tend to fall on the poor more than right. the, the rich. The poor and the older. And, I mean, that, the, yeah. But yeah. The, the, my favorite example of this is the forever stamp. Like back when stamps had a denomination on them, right. you knew exactly how much a stamp cost because every time you used a stamp, it would say on it how much it cost. And now that they just say forever, people don't actually know how much stamps cost anymore. Yeah. Do you still use stamps? How old are you? <laughs> <laughs> Only joking. I, I bought some stamps yesterday. How much did they cost? Uh, I, got, I got international ones. They were $4 a piece. Wow. Yeah. It's expensive. I had to get four of them just to send something to the UK. <laughs> That's another thing. That's what the guy uh, in the actually, told me, at least. On which note, Charles, I'm going to do my number. Okay. My number is 0.2%, which is the amount that the UK economy shrank in the second quarter of this year. The UK economy is not growing. It is shrinking, or at least it was in the second three months of this year. And we haven't even had Brexit yet. So that's worrying. Uncertainty, man. What's um, what what happens to Boris Johnson's hairline every single time the uh, the UK <laughs> economy gets, shrinks? It just gets a little bit shaggier. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> It'll just be a full sheepdog at some point. <laughs> Anna, what's your number? So I'm kind of changing my number. So I'm trying to remember exactly what it is. It's either 120 or 140. It's somewhere um, around. It's, it's there. one of those. You know what I'm going to go with? This is the number of football fields of cheese that were stored underground in Kansas because of ridiculous dairy policies that the United States had in um, through Jimmy Carter. That- I love the idea of underground football fields made of cheese. This is so cool. I've never really been a sports fan. But now that I know that you can play sport on an underground football shield made of cheese, what kind of cheese is it? Can I play football on like Gorgonzola? So no, the size, the size of like 120 football fields filled with what actually was what became known as government cheese because they had so much cheese and they didn't know what to do with it. So then they started to give it away and then it became this thing that people had, which was government I've cheese. Always, I've always had a problem with AstroTurf. I feel like if we just replaced it with cheese. Cheddar that, would be kind of springy. I think so. <laughs> little I'm, little I'm, slippery. Little I'm, slippery. I'm into, well, you, you have like the cleats. You, you cleats would just thinking of the logistics here. That like <laughs> now I am one hundred and, and and not only are these football fields made of cheese, but they're also underground. Yeah. So you get in natural. Kansas. You get natural like in Kansas. You, you don't need to air condition because it's all in the like beautiful caves, and the, and the, and the cheese is being aged naturally. I'm I'm all in favor of this. Wait, are you pro, I, Anna? Are you pro government cheese or anti government cheese? Well. I, the fact that they re- spent this ridiculous amount of money, like trying to prop up dairy prices by buying all this stupid cheese, like that was very dumb. Giving it away to poor people is fine, although giving money to poor people and just saying, if you want to buy cheese, fine. If you want to buy something else, fine, would probably have been a better solution to this. But yes. 
Okay, so my, right, your number is 13. My number is 13. So I, I'm going to invite, I, it's a prognostication. I'm going to invite our audience to run, a, <laughs> run an experiment. So I have this theory. So we're, it's August, right? It's it is the, August. It's the month when nobody pays attention to what's going on. Reporters go on, on vacation. I think that the president's tw- number of tweets are going to dip in August. And I think the reason why, so my prognostication is no more than 13 tweets every two weeks. And I think the reason why... Oh, I'll take the over. <laughs> oh, I mean, 13 w- tweets every two days, I might, you know, but Wasn't every two Wasn't his tweet weeks? like four tweets towards one tweet I, yesterday? I have, I, I work okay, for, maybe 13 tweets a week. Let's make it 13, <laughs> 13 tweets a week. I, I work for Axios, and we cover the president very closely, and we have a little Slack robot that automatically drops his tweets into a Slack channel every time he tweets. I can guarantee you... There hasn't been two weeks of his presidency where he's come close to a mere well, 13. Here's what I'm thinking. So let's say 13 a week, because I think that with less coverage of them, because everyone's on vacation, people are reading the papers less. I think that actually the president responds to the attention of the tweet and that if we decrease the attention, he will tweet less. I, I'm going to put it out there. I think it's an experiment we can conduct this month. I actually think that like when people say like, oh, the president's terrible, blah, blah, blah. I think we're part of the problem. It's because we keep on reading his well, tweets. Okay, and so now we have so, a natural experiment. All right, so, be pe- so you're, saying, read. you're saying for the month of August? For the month of August, no more than 13 tweets a week. I'm putting my money down. How much do you want to bet? Because I will totally, <laughs> I will totally take. I haven't, over. I haven't we'll actually been counting government cheese. <laughs> I haven't been counting how many tweets he's done on an average. Like I don't know what the moving average is for just, a weekly just, basis. Just name your stakes, Charles Duhigg, and I will take the over. Steak dinner. Steak dinner. Steak dinner. All right. You if will... he goes, if he goes one week with thirteen or less tweets. Wait, we're not averaging. No, no, no. We got. <laughs> I'm, all I'm looking for is a, is a seven day period. So okay, you're gonna have to do the counting because I. <laughs> You got it. You got you it. do the counting. If he manages to go seven days with fewer than thirteen tweets, I will buy you a steak dinner. If he doesn't, you need to buy me a steak dinner. Done. Done. I'm in. Okay. Anna, you want in on this? I don't eat steak. She, she, but <laughs> sadly, Anna does not eat no. steak. Wow. Okay. Not only did we manage to have a whole podcast with with Charles Duhigg, but we also managed to get a wager out of it. <laughs> this is awesome, and I'm I'm I already know which steakhouse I'm going to make you take me. Yeah. To. Yeah. So, mm, <laughs> nom. Yeah, I feel some bernets in my future. It's going to be. It's yeah. It's going to be good. I like the excitement. Charles, you know what I'm going to do? What's that? I'm going to drop one of your podcasts into the Slate Money feed. I love it. So, do, do which I do one? I have to buy extra, extra, um, extra steak? Yeah, yeah. For, for that one, I want like cream spinach. On okay, the you got it. You what? Got it. What's which one am I going to drop in? That one I leave up to you. Oh, you know what? Which one we can drop in is how to fire someone. Yes, so, so let's we, do that one. So this week we're doing we're doing how to fire a bad employee, and it's this guy who lives in Montana, a farming state, not a farmer. He runs a graphic design firm, and he has this this employee that he's been trying to fire for like over a year, and he cannot bring himself to do it. So we get Bob Sutton, this professor at, at Stanford Business School, to tell him, "Look, here's actually the the like five things you do in order to fire someone, not only in the kindest way for them, but in the kindest way for yourself." I like that. Because firing is hard, I mean, it's, right? It's, it's sad horrible. That you yeah. wound up talking to Bob Sutton rather than like George Clooney. Because George Clooney <laughs> would have been great. <laughs> How, George Clooney on does firing? He, he Wait, didn't strong you remember that movie? Like, oh, yes, up yes, in yes. The up in the air. I, got, I see where oh, you're going. Oh, yes. There. That's but right. But he was really bad at firing people. <laughs> he was, that's right. He would just fly around 
firing people. I mean, I we can find something else to talk to George Clooney. And if George, <laughs> if George, if you're listening, we'll have you on the show anytime. But in the meantime, in the meantime, Bob Sutton. If, if, the, the name of the show. Gonna, is, the, the name of the show is How to. And basically, what we do is each week someone calls in with a problem, and we use kind of the tools of investigative journalism to solve their problem. So, and this time we're gonna. Have, and so basically. We are going to get to the end of this thing, and some poor guy in Madison, Wisconsin. Wait, where, where is it? Uh, it's he's in Montana. Um, Montana. Montana. In Montana. Mo- some guy in Mon- Montana is going to be fired, but we're all going to feel like we've all learned something anyway. Well, you got to listen to the episode. To okay. Find out. Also, very importantly, Charles, you have your podcast, How to. I have my podcast, which is Slate Money, but it's also Slate Money Succession. I have a special Monday morning recap show for the next 10 weeks. This is happening, people. This is what I have been looking forward to for literally a year now, is we get to watch every single episode of Succession on Sunday nights, and then on Monday morning, we bring like the coolest, most awesome people in the world on to talk about it. I'm definitely going to watch. I'm going to listen to that. I'm going to watch Succession and then I'm going to listen so to that. So tomorrow night, Sunday night, you have to watch Succession season two, episode one. And then on Monday morning, Edmund Lee is going to be right here on Slate Money talking about like all of the real world parallels and the, we are going to wonk out about the media world like you have no idea. And you are a journalist, therefore I know you are watching it. I am absolutely watching it. I'm, and I am tuning in to listen. I cannot wait. I actually thought that, I thought the premiere was last Sunday, and I like got all excited. It's not. And it's not. It's but this it's, Sunday. It's tomorrow. Which means Monday is, this, is the premiere. Of, of, of Slate Money Succession. I love it. Isn't it going to be awesome? I'm tuning in. Charles, thank you so much for coming on Slate Money. Thanks I can't for wait having to me. listen to that episode. Uh, many thanks to um, not only June Thomas, but like all manner of fabulous Slate people for producing this week. And we, Phil Circus. Wasn't he in like The Hobbit? I don't know. Thank you, Phil Circus, for producing. And, and we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.